Welcome to Suspending the Rules, Bloomberg Government's weekly look at what's happening in Congress. With the 2018 elections now in the rearview mirror, at least mostly, Congress returns to Washington this week to kick off the lame duck session. They've got a lot of big, must-pass legislation to get to between now and the end of the year, but for this week, it looks like it's mostly non-controversial items. I'm Adam Taylor, and this is Suspending the Rules from Bloomberg Government. I'm Adam Shank. In the second segment, we'll get into some of those measures. First, though, a plug for our special episode that came out last Wednesday. We got together with reporters and editors from across Bloomberg Government, Bloomberg Environment, Bloomberg Tax, and Bloomberg Law to take an early look at what what the election results mean for policy in the 116th Congress. We look at the big picture, healthcare, climate policy, immigration, and more. Find that on our SoundCloud page and wherever you get your podcasts. Today, in the first segment, we're going to look at how leadership is shaping up for this new Congress. Changes are coming to the top of the House of Representatives beyond just the party in the majority. Outgoing Speaker Paul Ryan's retirement will open up the top Republican spot in the chamber, and some Democrats are looking for a new face at the top of their own party as both caucuses conduct their leadership elections in the next few weeks. Bloomberg government congressional reporter Catherine Scott and lobbying reporter Megan Wilson join us now to set the stage. Thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. Thank you. So let's start at the top of the new house. Nancy Pelosi is widely expected to take the speakership when the 116th Congress gavels in, but there's a small group of Democratic lawmakers pushing for a replacement. Who's leading that push and do they have anyone in mind and do they have a chance? Sure. So that's about 14 Democrats. They're led by Kathleen Rice, Seth Moulton, uh, Tim Ryan, who challenged Pelosi last Congress, and Ed Perlmutter. The problem with their push, they're trying to change some of the caucus rules to make it more challenging for Pelosi to have another shot at being speaker. The problem with that is that they don't have anyone in mind to replace her, and it doesn't look like there's anyone as well poised to take over leading the party in the House right now. And Pelosi's advocates have definitely taken advantage of that by pointing out that you can't replace someone with no one. So we'll see where that goes when they have their caucus elections. Pelosi has said she'd be a transitional speaker within this Congress. What does she mean by that? And with Steny Hoyer and Jim Clyburn, the second and third highest ranking Democrats in the House, also in their late 70s, who would succeed her? Sure. So we're seeing the youngest and most female and most diverse freshman class and and Democratic House membership in a really long time. And so Pelosi acknowledging that she's going to be a transitional leader is sort of acknowledging that there's less patience for an older leadership. They want leadership to reflect the actual Democratic caucus. And can I just Um, interrupt right there? And and that's been a complaint with the Democrats for a while now, right, that the mm -hmm. leadership at the top is sort of pushed, would be up and comers sort of out of the House. Exactly. You've seen a lot of potential leadership people like Chris Van Hollen and Javier Becerra sort of give up and leave um, for, for other positions, whether in the Senate or in state government, um, because there's just no room to move up to the top. So when Pelosi says she's a transitional speaker, that, that means that this will probably be her last term serving in leadership, and that'll provide an opening for, for newer members at the bottom to sort of rise up. Is there anybody being groomed to, to move into that? I know Hakeem Jeffries has declared his intent to run for the uh, chairman of the Democratic caucus, and, and it seems like they could be clearing the field for him. Yeah, I think that a lot of the down-ballot races are going to be, are really proxy races for who's next in line for the speakership. I think that you'll see, yep, the assistant Democratic leader race is, is going to be really important. Even who's leading the D-trip is going to have longer-term effects on who's shaping up and who's being groomed to, to lead and in the future. And just real quick for our, our listeners, D-trip is referring to... <laughs> yes. 
Yes, uh, Democratic Congressional <laughs> Campaign Committee. And that, that's a committee that runs their sort of campaign arm, right? Exactly. We saw after the 2016 election that those who had been in Trump's orbit before and during the campaign were in very high demand for lobbying positions. Megan, should we expect something similar with Democrats now having power in the House? A hundred percent. You know, whenever you see power shift in Washington, you hear proverbial uh, cash registers ring all over K Street as firms and corporations want to make sure they have folks close to those in power to influence the legislative and regulatory agenda, as the case may be. We mentioned Paul Ryan's retirement earlier. What is the race to replace him as a Republican leader looking like, Catherine? Bloomberg's Billy House actually reported this morning that Kevin McCarthy, currently the majority leader, has locked up the votes to succeed Paul Ryan as speaker. There was a little bit of last minute noise when Jim Jordan jumped into the race. He had a lot of Tea Party groups sort of come out in support for him. There are a lot of protests and demonstrations outside the Capitol, but ultimately it looks like Kevin McCarthy is going to have the votes to become the next minority leader. So with Pelosi expected to come in to the speakership, does that mean that people sort of related to the Republican caucus or or conference and and Kevin McCarthy still relevant? Absolutely. So their market value might not be as high, lobbyists close to uh, Mr. McCarthy. However, with a Republican-controlled Senate, legislation in order to become law has to get through both the House and the Senate. So having a compromise is very, very important, and you're going to need lobbyists close to both Republicans and Democrats to make that happen. Catherine Scott, Megan Wilson, thanks for coming on. Thank Thank you. you. We'll be right back to talk about what's coming up this week in Congress. On Monday, Senators John Thune and Ton Carper, the chairman and ranking member of the Senate Commerce Committee, announced that they'd reached an agreement on a measure to reauthorize the Coast Guard through next September. It would also change the way discharges from ships are regulated, things like ballast water that can carry invasive species. The Senate should vote on that this week, sending it to the House, and we'll be monitoring it here at Bloomberg Government. On the other side of the Capitol, the House is slated to move 15 relatively non-controversial measures under the process this podcast is named for, suspension of the rules. Joining us now are Danielle Parnas and Noreen Chowdhury to preview the week. There's also one bill they'll consider under a rule requiring just a simple majority for passage. That bill is called the Manage Our Wolves Act, and our own Adam Taylor is following it. So, Adam, tell us about the bill. So this bill would require the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to remove the gray wolf from the Endangered Species Act protections, remove it from the Endangered and Threatened Species list. It would also exempt the rule that FWS would use to do that from being challenged in court. Ranchers out west and some farmers of livestock in the Midwest are not big fans of wolves, and these populations have been growing recently, and so they would like to allow states to manage the populations as opposed to the federal government. And what's the argument on the other side? Are there groups that are saying that this is an endangered species and should be protected? Yeah, there are environmental groups and conservation groups that have lined up in opposition to this bill. They say that the process used is is flawed, essentially doing it through legislative fiat rather than through the rulemaking process is a mistake and goes against the intent of the Endangered Species Act. So what does delisting the species actually mean? What sort of protections would it lose if that is the case? 
space. Right now, to do any kind of population control on the wolves, you can't hunt them, you can't shoot them unless there's you know a real emergency situation to life or property. And even then, you have to really demonstrate it. That would go away, essentially allowing states to step in and decide what level of protection. Some states could say the populations are still challenged in, in our state, and so you can't shoot them at all. Others will have much more lax protections, but it would really devolve it to the, to the state level. Why this uh, focus on judicial review? What is that provision in the bill do? So the the history of gray wolves under the Endangered Species Act really has played out in the courts. In 2009, FWS tried to delist the wolf nationally, which is the same thing this bill would require them to do. But a court overturned it, saying that their process was flawed. They didn't use the right data or they didn't go through every step. They didn't check all the boxes or, or dot all the I's and cross the T's. And so it was overturned. And since then, we've seen smaller delistings in, in certain states like the Western Great Lakes region, which is Minnesota, Wisconsin, and Michigan. That was overturned by a court. So were some other ones. Right now, the only states that have authority, the only places where federal delisting is has happened is Montana and Idaho, where those states actually can manage the, the populations. So what's going on with this bill? What are its prospects? It'll probably pass the House because it is under a rule. So it only requires a simple majority. And I, they, they wouldn't have posted it if they, they weren't likely to get there. It'll be mostly party lines. There are some Democrats that'll cross the aisle for this, especially those from rural areas that that have ranching and farming populations that are affected by the wolves. There's no companion bill in the Senate, though, so I'm not sure what's going to happen once it gets over there, whether the Senate will have any appetite to move this at all, especially with the really compressed lame duck. Well, thanks, Adam. So in the slate of suspension bills, one of the highlights is the PEPFAR Extension Act. Uh, Noreen Chowdhury is covering this one for us. It's not a controversial bill, but it's got a big reach. So Noreen, what is the PEPFAR program this measure would extend? So the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief, or what's known as PEPFAR is a foreign aid program that tackles HIV globally. It's considered to be the largest global health initiative devoted to a single disease. In fact, the U.S. has spent more than $70 billion on it. PEPFAR was started by President George W. Bush in 2003 as a State Department-led initiative. It also involves other agencies such as Health and Human Services and USAID. The program operates in more than 50 countries and has provided antiretroviral treatment to more than 14 million people. It's funded through three mechanisms. First, the U.S. HIV-specific funding to recipient countries, U.S. contributions to the Global Fund, and U.N. funding as well. So what does this bill do that um, is up this week? So what's important to note is that most of the program is permanently authorized, but there are some time-based provisions that expired on September 30th. The reauthorizing bill focuses on how they would fund to recipient countries. So the bill would require more than half of funds to be used for medical treatment and nutrition for people living with HIV. It also require at least 10% of funds to go towards orphans and children affected by HIV. Next, we'll see how U.S. contributions are made to the Global Fund, which tackles AIDS, tuberculosis, and malaria internationally. So U.S. contributions to this fund can't exceed 33% of all combined funding. And another provision would be extended that requires the U.S. to withhold contributions to the fund if funds are invested in countries that support terrorism. And this is a pretty, as we mentioned, non-controversial bill, so are most groups or members of Congress supporting it? Yeah, so there, it's had a history of support from both Democrats and Republicans, and a broad range of groups support it, from faith-based to health-based and professional organizations.
organizations such as the Global Health Council, Catholic Relief Services, and the American Psychological Association. Great. Thanks, Noreen. Some other bills on the House's agenda for this week include some land transfers and mapping bills. The land transfer bills, some of them are a little bit interesting. There's a couple of reservoirs in North Dakota that if you own a cabin there, you could actually own it going forward, potentially, depending on what your, your local parks board decides. There's there's some other you know smaller ones. All right. Well, uh, that's it for this week's edition of Suspending the Rules. Thanks for joining us, and we'll talk to you later. Thank you for listening to Suspending the Rules. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud. Find out more about the topics we discussed today and a whole lot more from Bloomberg government at about.bgov.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at bgov. The legislative analyst team is Sarah Babbage, Noreen Chowdhury, Daniel Parnas, Michael Smallberg, and me, Adam Taylor. Our editor is Adam Shank. Nico Anzalata is our sound engineer. Our theme music is Home Organ by Zach Nasita. More information can be found at premiumbeat.com.